Let's go ahead and pray. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 12 this morning. And uh, let's go ahead and pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come to this altar once again, this altar that we call our church, Lord, this place of worship of you, this place that we gather to call upon your name, Lord, to seek you. Lord, we come here with uh, burdens to lay before you. We come here with repentance that needs to be done, Lord. We come here with a desire to know you more and seek you, and Lord, that you would speak into our lives. And Lord, we, we thank you that whenever we open up your word, Lord, you are so faithful that you speak to us. Thank you, Lord, that your word, it's your word then and it is your living word today. And Lord, you want to speak into our lives a living, active word. So Lord, we give you permission today to speak into our lives. And we ask that you give us ears to hear. We ask that you give us hearts that are good soil to receive the seed of your word. And we pray, Lord, that it would produce much, much good fruit in our lives to your glory, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we are studying through Genesis, the book of Genesis on Sunday mornings, and this is the book of beginnings. This is an important book. It's, I would say this is a foundational book to our understanding of the gospel, actually. We cannot really fully understand or comprehend the significance of the gospel unless we understand the foundation of the gospel, and that's found right here in the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis, as we saw last week, it is the foundation for our understanding of the mission of God. And last week in our study, we met a guy, we met a man named Abram. Later on, his name will be changed to Abraham. You probably know this, he's a pretty big deal. But he didn't start out as a big deal. He started out as a pagan guy, living in a pagan city, in his 50s, with a dysfunctional family. And, uh, and just like, though, God does with you and I, God reached into the mess that was Abraham's life, and he called him by name, and he pulled him out of that, and he gave him a promise and a blessing. He told him, Abraham, I'll make you a deal. If you'll follow me, if you will close your eyes and take my hand and let me be the Lord of your life and let me lead you, then I will bless you and I will make your name great and I will make you a blessing and in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And what that means in the big picture is this, that God chose this man, Abram, to be the father of a nation, a new nation from which God would bring about the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the Redeemer, who, who God promised back in Genesis chapter 3, if you remember, if you've been tracking with us. In Genesis chapter 3, God promised that he would send one who would break the curse of sin, who would defeat sin, death, and the devil, and provide a way of salvation to all who are willing to receive it. We know that man as Jesus Christ. And now we stand on the opposite side of history from Abram. Abram was looking forward to the Messiah with hope and with expectation. And where we're at, we're looking back to Jesus Christ. We're looking back to his finished work on the cross. So not only is Abram going to be the father of this great nation through whom the Messiah will come, but God wants Abram to be the prototype of what it looks like to walk with God by faith. He wants him to be the prototype of what it looks like to be connected to God by faith. 
And in our study today, we're going to see Abram begin his walk of faith in response to the call of God. He's going to begin his walk of faith and obedience to God. And as we look at that, we want to learn what it means for us to walk with God by faith. And what's interesting as, we, as we're going to go through this chapter is this. What we're going to see is that Abram begins to walk with God by faith, but he doesn't do it perfectly. He stumbles. And actually, he stumbles more than once. And he stumbles in some pretty serious ways, as we're going to see. And in that way, Abram's a lot like us. Because we don't have perfect faith. We aren't just born again, then automatically we have this mature, perfect faith. Sometimes we stumble in our faith, in our walk with God. But as we're going to see, this is the amazing thing that we see. We see how God deals with Abraham. And it reveals to us the heart of God, who is faithful, who is persistent, who forgives and who restores and who blesses. And that should give us immense amounts of hope and comfort as we study this today. So, today we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 12, from verse 4 to chapter 13, verse 4. And I want to break it down for you. If you're a note taker, here's their outline. From chapter 12, verses 4 through 9, we're going to look at a tent and an altar. Then in verses 10 through 20, we're going to be talking about good guys and bad guys. And then from, and then the third part, chapter 13, verses 1 through 4, we're going to talk about the key to Abraham's greatness. So let's begin and look at a tent and an altar from verses 4 through 9. Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and all the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel to the west and Ai to the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going, going toward the Negeb. As we look at the life of Abraham, what we're going to see is that there are two objects which really characterize his life, that sum up what he's all about. A tent and an altar. That kind of sums up who he is and what he's about. A tent because he was a sojourner, because he was a pilgrim, and an altar because he was a worshiper. And in many ways, this is like a picture of the Christian life. Um, we are in this world, but we're not of this world. We are dual citizens, if you will. Citizens of this world, but also citizens of heaven. And we are worshipers. And just like Abraham, as he journeyed with God, walking by faith, all along the way, he would stop and he would build altars and worship the Lord and invite others to join him and worship the Lord too. You know, the Bible is by far the most printed book uh, in history. Uh, by far. By, it surpasses other books that were printed by multiple billions. I mean, it's, it's huge. But, uh, you know, in fact, the, the printing press, the first use of the printing press was for the printing of Scripture when it was not available readily to the common people. But what is arguably the second most printed book in history, and if not the second most, is definitely in the top ten, is John Bunyan's book, The Pilgrim's Progress. 
And uh, actually the full title of the book is The Pilgrim's Progress from This World to That Which Is to Come. It was published back in 1678. It's kind of old, but it's great. If you haven't read it, you should check it out. But if you haven't read it, here's the deal. It's an allegorical story about the Christian life. And it portrays the Christian life as this great journey. And the journey begins with responding to the call of Jesus to repent of your sin and follow him and be born again. And the ultimate destination that the main character, whose name is Believer, uh, the ultimate destination that he's journeying towards is called the heavenly city. And all along the way, he faces hardships, he faces distractions, he faces temptations, he even faces ridicule. But finally, he does make it to the heavenly city. And and upon arriving there, he's asked to present his passport. He's asked to present his passport and prove his citizenship. And he pulls out this scroll to prove that indeed he is a citizen of heaven. So God's word tells us that, that all of us who have put our faith in the finished work of Christ Jesus on the cross, you know, who have made him the Lord of our lives, we have received this citizenship in heaven. And truly, heaven is that place that we really long for, deep down inside. It is a place where we truly feel at home. You know, I I used to travel a lot when I lived in Hungary, and I always loved coming home. You know, there's something comforting about coming home. Something that's comforting because at home, that's where things are the way that they should be, right? Things work the way that, that they should work. But to an infinitely greater degree, heaven is the place where everything will be as it truly should be. And deep down inside, that's what all of us truly desire. In Hebrews chapter 11, we read this about Abram and the mentality that he lived with as he walked with God. It says this, Hebrews 11 verse 9, By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Now here's an interesting thing to think about. When you're, when you're picturing this story in your mind's eye. The place that Abram came from, right? Ur of the Chaldees. According to archaeologists, this was one of the most modern, most civilized places in the world at the time. They say that this was the first place in the world to have hot running water. I mean, uh, these people were not living in tents. They were living in nice places with hot tubs, you know. And they had schools, and they had literature, and they had books. This was a civilized place. Additionally, uh, another thing is that archaeologists have also found that the other cities mentioned in this chapter, we read about Shechem and Bethel, these were at this time fairly large walled cities, you know, with roads and streets and governments and things like that. In other words, there was civilization at this point. People didn't all live in tents. And so you shouldn't picture it that everybody lives in tents like Abraham does. No, these were full-on cities. And the picture that we get is that Abram deliberately pitched his tent outside of the city. He refused to move into the city. Abram could easily have moved into town, bought a house, settled down, but he chose to live in a tent outside of town. And Abram's tent, of course, is significant because it's symbolic of the mentality that he lived with. He lived his life as a pilgrim. Not only a pilgrim in Canaan, but that was his general mentality about life on the earth. He's a pilgrim. The thing that he sought most of all, as we read in Hebrews 11, was the city that had foundations, whose designer and builder was God. 
And you know what city that's referring to, right? It's referring to the heavenly city. And Abram knew that what he truly longed for, what he truly sought after, what he truly desired in the depth of his heart could not be found, could not be fulfilled in any human city. He'd done the big city thing. He'd done the hot tub thing. He'd done the big house thing. And he realized that that wasn't what his heart truly longed for. Therefore, he lived his life with a tent mentality because he realized what he truly desired was only found in the heavenly city. And as Christians, we, we would do well to live with a tent mentality that Abram had, realizing that what we truly long for and desire in the depths of our heart can only be found in the heavenly city, not in the things of this world. You know, the philosopher Blaise Pascal, he was, actually, he was a Christian, you know, and a lot of his philosophy was actually apologetic in nature. He was arguing for Christianity. And he said this, he said, there's something nostalgic and reminiscent in us that longs to get back to the place that we came from. And that is because we came from perfection and we were made for perfection. And that is why we have this sort of lingering memory of it. And therefore we long to return to the place where everything is as God intended it to be. The Apostle Peter said this in in 1 Peter chapter 2. He said, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. You know, just like the character believer in the, in the Pilgrim's Progress, as we travel towards our ultimate destination, the heavenly city, in the same way as, as there were for him, there are hardships, there are distractions, there are temptations that we face. But like Abram, we need to be people who understand that what we truly long for is ultimately found in the heavenly city. And you know what that knowledge does when you, when you really get that and when you really take hold of that and embrace that truth? It frees you up. It frees you up from clinging desperately to the things of this world to fulfill you. Because in Christ you have a hope that transcends this world. And that frees you up to be able to say what the Apostle Paul said when he said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm alive, my life is going to be dedicated to the Lord. And if I die, well then I get to go be with him. He was totally free. It frees you up to say, Lord, I know that in you I have an eternity of, of pleasure and joy to look forward to. So instead of spending my few short years here on earth trying to fulfill myself and make myself happy, I dedicate my life to you. For you to use as you please. I close my eyes, I take your hand, and I say, take me where you will and do with me what you will for your glory. And you know what the irony is? I'm sure some of you know this from experience. The irony is this, that when you lay down your life like that before God, as a living sacrifice, you say, here I am, God. Take me, lead me, do whatever you will. Here's what happens, is that you actually find true life at that moment. You actually receive so much more when you give yourself over to him completely. You find true fulfillment in the here and now. Jesus said this, he said, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel's sake will save it. That's the irony. It's a phenomenon that Jesus is talking about. Have you ever observed that phenomenon in the life of people? I certainly have. I've I've seen people who strive so hard. This is the focus of their life is how can I make myself happy? How can I be fulfilled? And in the end they end up 
alone and unhappy and unfulfilled. And I've seen others who've dedicated their whole lives to serving others and serving God and serving people in God's name. And they are the most fulfilled, most happy, joyful people. And they're surrounded by a lot of other people. They have a lot of companions. You're able to lay down your life for the Lord when you understand that this life is really just a mist that appears for a moment and then fades away. But eternity lasts forever, and in Jesus Christ we have the hope of eternal life and citizenship in the heavenly city. But notice this also. Abraham wasn't just a doer and a goer, but he was also a worshiper. Notice this too. The first time that Abraham builds an altar to worship is where he has an encounter with God, right? God shows up, God speaks to him. And and Abram responds by building an altar in the sight of his family, in the sight of his companions, and he worships the Lord. In in verse 5, we read that Abram actually had a a whole crew of people. I like to think of it as a posse. He had a posse that was going with him as he traveled, and, and they joined up with him in Haran. And, and Abram, you know, that's an interesting thing. It shows us that he was a leader of men. Because Abram started out with just his family. Along the way, though, people joined up with him. He had a lot of companions. They saw his vision. They heard that God had spoke to him. And they said, we want to track with you in this way. And he brought them into his community. And as he did, they got to see his faith lived out up close and personal in real life situations. They saw him build an altar and worship the Lord. They saw how he trusted in the promises of God. They heard his prayers. And you know that had a huge impact on them. And notice this also. Where does Abram build his first altar? He builds it in the city of Shechem. And we read there that this at the time was a Canaanite city. The Canaanites did not worship the true and living God. They worshipped other gods. They worshipped false gods. And so in this place of, of false worship, in this place of darkness, where the name of God is not known, what does Abram do? He builds an altar. He builds a place of worship, and he provides a place where people can come and meet with the true and living God. And in Shechem, the place where, where false gods are worshipped, we see that God shows up and speaks to Abram. And the point is this. Our God is a God who gets his hands dirty. He's not afraid to get his hands dirty. He's not afraid to go into dark places. And he reaches out to dark people. Our God isn't scared of sin. He can handle it. Because indeed, he actually bore all of the sin of the world. Past, present, and future. He's already dealt with all that sin on the cross in Calvary. So look where God shows up. He shows up in a pagan city and speaks to Abram. In a place where his name is not known, in a pagan city in Shechem, he doesn't stand afar off from Shechem and say, ooh, it's nasty over there, a bunch of sinners there. That's just gross, you know? He doesn't do that. But he goes into that place and he speaks. And really, that's the heart of the incarnation. That God left the glory, the perfection of heaven. He became a man and he entered into a sick world so that he could bring healing. And Jesus, right, he's our ultimate example. He was the friend of sinners, but he didn't sin. He went into dark places, but he didn't participate in the acts of darkness, but he shined the light of God. And so as Christians, our goal should not be to isolate ourselves from sinners, 
you know, so we don't have to meet any, so we don't have to run into them or talk to them or be in dark places. You know, uh, we don't try to isolate ourselves from dark places and, and from people who don't share our beliefs and convictions, but rather, like incarnational ministry, we, we go as ambassadors of Christ who want to spread the aroma of the knowledge of Christ everywhere we go. Like Abram, who wasn't conformed to the city of Shechem, but he built an altar there and worshipped the Lord in that place. Abram was a pilgrim and a worshipper, and I pray that that would be true of all of us as well. Let's go on and talk about our next point, good guys and bad guys. And I'm going to read from verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. For the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you're a very beautiful woman in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake he dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you've done to me? Why did you not tell me she was your wife? Why did you say, She is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here's your wife, take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So, as you're going to see, Genesis is filled with some pretty crazy stories. This is one of them. You know, one of our tendencies as as human beings is that we like to categorize things because that makes life easy for us. It makes us feel comfortable. And we like to categorize people. It's easy, it's comfortable for us to, to see the world in black and white and make broad generalities about the way that things work and the way that people are. And one of the ways that we often categorize people is into good guys and bad guys, right? Just like in the old Western films, I got a picture here for you. The good guy wears the white hat, the bad guy wears the black hat, right? And the good guy is always a saint. He kisses babies, he helps old people cross the street. He always does the right thing and always has pure intentions. And the bad guy is just evil all the time. He is a villain. The good guy is always the hero, right? That is how a lot of people view the world. This just simplified black and white version of how people are. The problem is that view is is often very, very much disconnected from reality. And and for that reason, you know, people who hold this good guy, bad guy view are often the ones who, who find themselves disenchanted when they're encountering reality. When they meet someone who they they thought this person was a good guy, but then they do something that's just terrible. And they don't have a category for that, you know? Where do I put that person? I thought they were a good guy. Now I have to realize that they were just a bad guy the whole time? Did they fool me? Was I naive? How did I not catch on that that guy wasn't a good guy? How did I miss that? You know? And I've known a lot of Christians who who hold on to this kind of thinking. Mainly the idea that, uh, you know, although I think we'd all agree that this isn't correct, but but somehow it's, it's subtly there, that... 
Christians and people who come to our church are the good guys, and people who aren't Christians or don't come to our church, they're the bad guys. Furthermore, uh, many people view their life as a story in which they are the main protagonist, right? And, and the people who don't agree with them are the antagonists, and that's kind of how they view their life. You know, me going about my thing and people trying to mess it up. Uh, when, when my kids act out a story, I've, I've noticed that they automatically play the part of the main protagonist in whatever story they're acting out, you know? The good guy who's fighting against the bad guys trying to defeat the evil, right? And I think also we can have this tendency when we approach the Bible, that when we read the Bible, we, we can automatically, if we don't watch ourselves, associate ourselves or compare ourselves to the good guy in the story, right? For example, Moses tells Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh, what does he do? He hardens his heart. And we look at that and we say, oh man, that Pharaoh, he's so rotten, you know? Good thing I'm not like that, right God? And then the children of Israel at the border to the promised land, but then they turn back. Why? Because of fear and because of disbelief. Because they're afraid of the giants and they don't believe that God can really give them victory. And we look at that and we say, Where's their faith? These guys stink, you know? Good thing I'm not like them. They're losers. And we read Jesus, right? He rebukes the Pharisees and uh, he tells them, you're judgmental. You know, you don't know anything about love. You don't know anything about the grace of God. You're whitewashed tombs. And we say, yeah, let them have it, Jesus. Those Pharisees really need somebody to tell them off. I'm glad you're there to do that. They're terrible. You know, we read uh, another one. We read the parable of the sower and the seed. And which one are we? There's four options. And we generally, I think, our, our human tendency is to say, well, of course I'm the good soil that receives the word and produces fruit a hundredfold. Because that's how I am. I'm the good guy. Uh, you know, God's word, though, it, it, God says this about his own word. He said, my word is like a mirror, right? And the mirror is there to show us how we really are, to help us see things in reality. So, but think about this, if, the, if when we read the Bible, we always see ourselves as the good guy in the story, that's like essentially assuming that the Bible is a mirror which exists to show us how awesome we are, to show us how good we look, that we could look into it and say, I really am very good looking, aren't I? And, and I don't think that that's the purpose of God's word. So when we read these stories, we need to see that they're there to reveal to us the tendencies in our own hearts. That sometimes we harden our hearts like Pharaoh. Sometimes I am a Pharisee. Sometimes I am scared and in disbelief because of the giants in the promised land. Sometimes my heart is the thorny soil. And another thing that God's word does is that it shows us reality. Think about the story that we're reading today. We're looking at Abram, the man of faith. You know, this is like family history of Israel. If this were not true, do you think they would include this? They would just make up some terrible stories about some things that their ancestors did? Hey, you know, uh, let's just make up a story about how great man Abram sold his wife as a prostitute to another guy. Let's, that would be great. That would really help everybody out, right? No, this is, this is just giving it to us as it is. Just raw reality. And, and really, I think that resonates with us because when we look at the world, we realize that things aren't always black and white. Sometimes the guy who's supposed to be the good guy does something that's terrible. And sometimes the bad guy actually does something that's right. 
Abram here, he's supposed to be the good guy, right? He's the believer, he's the worshiper, he has a relationship with God. And Pharaoh, he's supposed to be the bad guy, right? Because he doesn't even believe in God. In fact, he thinks that he is God. And he has a harem full of women, right? But is Abram really the good guy here? Think about this. God spoke to Abram, told him, leave your family, leave your home, go to the land of Canaan that I'll show you. And Abram goes, but like we talked about last week, he didn't go right away. We just read that he was 75 years old. He was 50 when God spoke to him. That means for 25 years, he didn't obey God. 25 years, that's like a really long time, right? And and then God tells him to go down to Canaan. He says, I will provide for you. I will show you where to go. But then Abram runs into some difficulty and he decides, God isn't coming through for me. I need to take things into my own hands. And he goes down to Egypt. And you always go down to Egypt. That's not a good thing. Down, down, down. You go down into sin. Egypt is a picture of the world. In the Pilgrim's Progress, Egypt is vanity fair, you know. And not only does he go down to Egypt, not not trusting in God, but he takes things into his own hands. And he does something that's absolutely crazy. He sells his wife to Pharaoh, into Pharaoh's harem. And he even tells her why. He has this conversation with her and he says, well, honey, you're pretty good looking. And, uh, and so if we run into some guys and they're like, hey, we want to have you, I'm just going to sell you to them uh, so they won't hurt me. Because I, you know, I'm kind of fragile. I break easily. I don't want to get hurt. All right. Thanks, honey. Good talk. You know, and that's, that's just about as cowardly as it gets, right? And you ladies out there, I always tell my wife this, she, you know, she doesn't fully agree with me, but, you know, if you think that your husband, you know, should have stepped up in this or that situation, really been a man, just be glad that uh, he didn't sell you to somebody else. I mean, it, it could be worse, right? This is pretty much as bad as it gets, but it actually does get worse because, okay, he does this once, but then in a few chapters from now, we're going to see that he actually sells her again to somebody else, If you thought it was bad, it gets worse, right? And notice throughout the whole story, Sarai doesn't say anything. And, you know, many commentators have said that she expressed great faith in God, trusting that God would protect her, even though her husband had been a coward and endangered her, which is actually what happened. God did save her and protect her. That's possible. Another explanation would be that she's looking at Abraham and she's thinking, you're really old, and we live in a tent, and you want to sell me to a guy with a house. Maybe that's okay, you know? Probably, though, it was the first explanation. She trusted God. So, so what Abram expected to happen, happens. Pharaoh's men come. They think that Sarah is pretty attractive, which is really uh, saying something when you consider that we're talking about uh, a 65-year-old woman here. I mean, she was attractive, and everybody, as we go through this book, everybody wants this lady. She was a good-looking grandma. And Abram sells her to Pharaoh. Not only does he save his own skin, but he gets a bunch of sheep and oxen and servants and camels. Now, in our day, that's like getting a Lexus and an iPad and an Xbox and and getting a posse. We see that he got a bunch of servants. So uh, all he had to do to get all that stuff was sell his wife to another man. You know, so either way, we got to say this. Abram is not acting like much of a hero right now, is he? And in the end, though, God does intervene, and, and he gives some kind of disease to Pharaoh and all his men. 
And we have to assume that Pharaoh figured it out because Sarai must have spoken up and said, uh, yeah, the reason that happened to you is probably because my husband and I, we walk with God and he's looking out for us. And, Sarah, and so Pharaoh, of course, he says, he's like, what? You're married, you know? Why didn't you tell me that? Why did you lie to me? And, and you and your husband, you walk with God? Is your God cool with this kind of stuff? I mean, what are you thinking? Abram has lost his witness. Even the Pharaoh here, the Pharaoh, he rebukes Abram, who's supposed to be the man of God. That's pretty humbling when you're the one who knows God and you're getting rebuked by the person who doesn't know God. And in the end, Pharaoh, he says, here, just keep all the stuff that I gave you and just get out of here. You know, go away. Who acted like a good guy in this story? Well, Abraham lied, sold his wife, and distrusted God. And additionally, God said he's gonna, he gave him this promise to make him a great nation and give him descendants through Sarai. And Abram goes and tries to give it all away by giving her to another man. Pharaoh, on the other hand, he refuses to sleep with another man's wife, and he's kind enough to let Abraham keep all the stuff that he gave. And he's upset that Abram lied. So, so this is what's great about the Bible. It just gives it to you straight. It's raw, unadulterated reality. And, and what we see here is this, this idea of categorizing people into good and bad. God's word doesn't let you do that. It shows us that, that something that we know to be true from experience, that sometimes good guys, so-called, do terrible things. And sometimes bad guys do good things. And what it comes down to is simply this. We need new categories. We need new categories altogether. According to the Bible, there are no good guys, right? There are only bad guys, and then there's God. God is the hero of this story. He's the hero of the whole story, and he's the only hero of the story. He is the only one wearing a white hat in this, sto- in this story. As you go through the book, you see that all these people who are supposedly good guys, they do bad things. Noah, he builds this ark, believes God, he's righteous. Then he gets drunk and naked in his tent. Then Abram, he's supposed to obey God's call to Canaan. He doesn't obey for 25 years. When he finally does, he leaves, goes to Egypt, and sells his wife to another man. And then he does it again. Abram's son Isaac, the son of promise, he also sells his wife to another man just like dad did. And then Jacob, well, I'm not even going to tell you what Jacob did because it's pretty messed up. We'll get there in a few weeks and you'll find out. Uh, as, As we go through Genesis in the Old Testament, you realize there are no good guys. There's only a good God who loves bad guys. And you realize that, in fact, I'm a bad guy and you're a bad guy, but thank God that God loves bad people. And that he offers to clothe us in his righteousness because we don't have any righteousness of our own. He says if you will put your faith in his provision, which we know who live this side of the cross is the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary, then he will clothe you in his righteousness because you don't have any on your own. Maybe you say, Nick, you're... You're really saying that I'm a bad person. You're damaging my self-esteem. I've been trying to build up my self-esteem for years. And you're just coming along and damaging it. But let me tell you this. If your self-esteem is based on the idea, that the belief that you are a good person, then it needs to be damaged. Because the Bible says that there are no good people. The very nature, our very nature is corrupted by sin. 
Remember Jesus came, somebody called him a good teacher, and even he said, how can you call me good? There's only one who's good, and it's God. So our self-esteem shouldn't be based on the belief that we're good people, but our self-esteem should be based on the fact of how much God loves us. The Bible teaches us this, this is the gospel, that you are wicked beyond what you even know, but you are loved more than you could ever imagine. God loves you in spite of your sin. And he wants to clothe you in his righteousness because he alone is good. And he proved his love for you by sending his son to die for you as the ultimate sacrifice. So the encouraging thing for you and I to see in this section is this. It shows us that true faith is imperfect. True faith fails sometimes. True faith grows. And sometimes it grows as a result of making mistakes, yet seeing that God is faithful and good. None of us come to God with an absolutely mature trust and faith. Did Abram have true faith? Of course he did, but he still failed. But rather than letting that error keep him down, he got up and he did something, which is what really makes him a great man of God and a great example for us. And that brings us to our third point. And let's read on in verse, or chapter 13, first four verses. Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had and lot with him into the Negeb. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negeb as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. What did Abram do? He went back to the last good day that he had with God. We call that repentance. He realized that he had blown it. He realized that he had disgraced his wife, that he had distrusted God, that he had blown it as a representative of God. He had blown his witness to people who didn't know God. And he repents and he retraces his steps and he goes back to the last good day that he had with God and he starts over where he left off. You know, that's what repentance is, is when you realize that you've blown it and you don't just feel bad about it. That's called regret, but you don't just feel bad about it, but you actually go back. You go back to where you were. You turn around. You walk out of it. Some people, they get caught up in something and they say, well, I'm already in the middle of it. I guess I'll just continue. No. Repent. Go back to the last good day you had with God and start over. That's what, exactly what Abram did. It's been said that the Christian life is a series of new beginnings. And that is the grace of God, the message of grace, that he is the God of second chances and third chances and fourth chances. And he's a God who loves imperfect people. And that's good for us because that's who we are. And if you have sinned or failed in some area, the best thing you can do is go back to the last good day you had with God and start over. In Revelation chapter 2, Jesus tells the church that had lost its first love, he says, return and do the things that you did at first, the things that you used to do. Go back to the last good day you had with God, pick up where you left off, no matter how much time has passed by. You know, Abram's an example for us, not because he was a good man, but because he was a man who understood repentance. And when he failed, he didn't just continue in folly, but he came back and repented. And as he did that, God restored him and gave him a fresh start. Since this was probably an outdoor altar, 
What you have a picture here of is Abram repenting of his sin in full sight of anyone who is watching. In full sight of his family, in full sight of his companions, everybody, he's saying, I should have never done that. I should have never gone down to Egypt. I should have never sold my wife to another man. I shouldn't have done that. And he says, God, I'm sorry, and I repent. And I've come back to the place of worship. I've come back to the altar, and I'm here to start over. Remember a, a pastor friend of mine who was, who was a bit of a mentor to me in my early years when I was in Hungary, uh, he said this. He said once to a group of us, he said, if you would observe me throughout the day, uh, if you could see everything that I do and everything that I think, you would be incredibly disappointed with me. You, would, you might even be delusioned, disillusioned to some degree because you would see me fail and you'd see me sin. You'd see me blow it. But if you would keep watching me, you'd be incredibly impressed because you would see how after I fail, I would get down on my knees and I would cry out to God and confess my sin and truly, honestly, from my heart, repent and ask him to help me and change me. See, great men and women of God aren't great because they're perfect. They're bad people, just like you and just like me. But the thing that makes them great is if they understand the art of repentance. That they don't just continue in folly when they're in it, but they humble themselves before God and before other people, and they repent. And, and, and as they do that, you know, God restores them. And as God restores them, their faith grows. And as their faith grows, their walk of obedience gets stronger. So my prayer for us today is that we would be like Abraham, that we would be pilgrims, that we would be worshipers, that we would be people who are quick to repent and fall upon, cast ourselves upon the love and kindness and grace of God, who is the true hero of this story. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Lord God, we thank you that you are the true hero of this story. Lord, we thank you that, that our relationship with you is not based on our goodness, Lord, but it's based on your righteousness. And Lord, thank you that your righteousness is perfect. And Lord, right now, we just want to, if, if there's any of us who are caught in some rut, Lord, some sin, and we don't see a way out, Lord, but we know that it's wrong, we feel regret, Lord, help us to repent. Help us to go back to the last good day that we had with you and start over from there. And I thank you, Lord, for your grace, that you are a God of second chances and third chances and fourth chances. Lord, thank you that you are a God who loves imperfect people. Thank you that you're a God who calls imperfect people and who uses imperfect people for your, for your purposes, Lord. And Lord, if there's anyone in here today who is trusting in their own goodness, and not trusting in your righteousness, Lord. If there's anyone in here today who, who knows that they're a bad person, Lord, but they have not repented and put their faith in the finished work of Christ Jesus and been clothed in the righteousness of God, by faith, Lord, I pray that they would make that decision today. And they would begin that journey from this world to the world to come, even today. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm-hmm.